friend, the therapist. On this podcast, we're skipping the small talk and working to destigmatize mental health through intimate conversations with everyday people about their mental health journeys and how they stay well in a world that feels like it's falling apart. Thank you so much for being here, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. My guest today is Eliza Dettenberg. I, did I pronounce that correctly? I actually, you did. Okay, yeah. I'm going to start over because I was like, oh, that's what I meant to ask you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Take two. Um, <laughs> my guest today is Liza Dettenberg. Liza is a therapist for highly sensitive people experiencing anxiety and low self-esteem in Massachusetts and Connecticut. She supports people ages 18 and up in managing their anxiety and owning their needs to live a confident, centered, and connected life. She uses EMDR, mindfulness, somatic, body-based practices, and parts work to support the people she works with. Thanks for being here, Liza. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I would love to start with a little bit about you and how you stay well as a therapist, as a human, working with the people that you work with. What does wellness look like for you? Yeah, such a good question. Um... I think that, you know, I think sometimes the idea of wellness kind of puts an unrealistic expectation on folks to always be well. And I actually like the way that I think of wellness is a lot of acceptance. Like we are humans and we have bodies and sometimes bodies and minds aren't always well, but I think that wellness is kind of accepting that. Um, And tuning in, like, you know, with that acceptance, instead of kind of pushing away, if you're not feeling well, like really kind of leaning in and tuning in if you aren't feeling well, um, or if one isn't feeling well, I've been reflecting on that recently, because for some reason, this weekend, I was just very tired. And, you know, I just went with that. So, you know, sometimes that meant going for a walk, kind of upregulating myself, sometimes that meant taking a nap. Um, And so, yeah, so kind of large scale, I think that wellness is really listening to what's happening in our body and in our minds and, and really kind of going with that instead of kind of pushing against what that is, which is hard in our society, really hard. Yes, and I really appreciate that um, clarification that wellness isn't necessarily striving to achieve a certain like feeling state. Like in my role as a yoga teacher, I often remind my students that the goal of yoga is not to be calm necessarily. It, certainly that could happen, but the the goal of yoga is to be present with your body and your mind. And I hear mm-hmm. like your definition of wellness is similar. It's not to be happy or to be healthy in like a medical sense, but to mm-hmm. actually create space for all of your feelings and all of your body to be present. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I'm curious bringing it, I mean, you did bring it into a more tangible, like really listening to your body. Do I need a walk? Do I need a nap? But are there ways Mm -hmm. that you actively cultivate that idea of wellness in your life or practices that you have? Yeah. So, um, I, I have this kind of, I have this practice or agreement that I've set with myself where mornings um, during the work week, so Monday through Friday, 
um, are my time. Um, I usually set aside about an hour of, um, I, I meditate t- 10 minutes a day. That feels realistic to me. Um, my ideal self would love to meditate like 30 to 40 minutes a day, but 10 minutes feels um, doable, realistic. So I meditate um, 10 minutes in the morning, Monday through Friday. And then I just have like my nothing time. So just my drinking coffee, looking out the window. I try to minimize phone use. I'm working on that. Um, but I I go th- in and out um, of being able to just put my phone in the other room and just not, not be connected to it. Um, and that really helps a lot. Um, I journal during that time too. I'll kind of set up my day. I find scheduling my day in the morning just really helpful and grounding. Um, so those are, that's kind of like a pretty structured practice. Well, it's unstructured, but structured mm-hmm. in the sense that I do yeah. it every morning. Um, but I, I appreciate the unstructured of it too. I feel like I need that. And that is um, a way that I, I get balance. And then the other piece is I have a dog, which is so helpful to be forced to go on walks. Um mm-hmm. And sometimes I'll force her even if she doesn't want to because I need a walk. Um, So, yeah, just kind of getting out, walking. Um, I also try to do that as much as possible without my phone. That's another kind of disconnection time. And I do find when I bring my phone, the quality of the walk is very different than when I don't bring my phone. So as you can hear, my relationship to the phone is a part of the wellness. And I'm kind of figuring out what that can look like. Yeah. And that has been a theme with people who I've chatted with on the podcast is disconnecting from technology actually helps us. <laughs> surprise, surprise. It's such a hard thing to put into practice, but it really, I mean, that is such a simple way to reconnect with yourself. Um, and yet something that we, for one reason or another, have a really hard time with. Yeah. Yeah. How did you come to this morning agreement with yourself that this is going to be your time has that always been a practice for you or is that something you had to really cultivate yeah that's a really good question so it's been ever evolving um meditation has been a part of my life for a very long time um I was fortunate enough to um have a parent who meditated, who kind of introduced meditation to me. I had to kind of go through my own process of rejecting it until I accepted mm-hmm. it. But um, I, I went to like family meditation camps when I was a kid and then teen meditation retreats um, and then adult meditation retreats. And so at that point, I didn't have a daily practice, but I did know that meditation helped me. And so I feel like through college, I kind of went in and out of meditating. Um, I always had my little meditation cushion in my dorm and would look at it and think, wow, that would be really nice to have a morning meditation practice. Mm-hmm. And maybe I would do it a couple of times per semester. So it's been ever evolving. It's been, you know, imperfect. I feel like that's, that's a, a theme I'm noticing even as I'm talking is like, wellness is accepting imperfect imperfection mm-hmm. and, you know, having goals and then knowing that getting there is going to be a journey and it's not going to be perfect. So my morning routine has been exactly that. Um, I've had like these goals, these ideals, and then um, accepting that it's hard and what, what are little steps along the way that I can do. So yeah, meditation, meditation was the first 
piece. And I think in the past two or three years is when I've really solidified the five days a week, 10 minutes a day meditation practice. And now it's, you know, kind of gotten to a point where it's a habit in a nice way where if I don't do it, I can really tell I'm not doing it. Um, and that is motivating to get back into it. Um, and then the rest, like the, I feel like the rest is kind of just evolved naturally with the meditation that I'm already kind of in that state. And then I just pull out my journal or my planner. Um, I also think as I'm reflecting, I think the pandemic helped with that too, where it was life slowed down enough for me to really implement it at a slower pace. Like there was just more space in my life to implement it. Once it was implemented and life kind of started to speed up again, it was, it was more in place. Um, so I was able to stick with it a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You see my meditation cushion behind me that is, feels similar to that college dorm room. It's like, when are you going to sit on me again? Yes. I, I'm curious what meditation looks like for you. Is there a particular mm-hmm. style? Is there a way that it looks every morning? And I ask yeah. um, out of personal curiosity because I have had an off and on relationship with meditation. But again, I know it's something that I benefit from and mm-hmm. yet I struggle to make it a routine Um, so I'm curious what the actual practice looks like, or if it's changed over the years, what the evolution of it has been. Yeah. Um, that is a really good question. So I, I like my, I have a very busy brain. Um, and so I find sometimes with guided meditation with my brain, it actually kind of activates the thinking even more with guided meditation. Mm. So one thing that really works for me is um, an open, unguided meditation where I sit on my cushion and the practice really, I kind of ask this question, like, what's there? And I just, it's like a very open question. What's there? I notice, you know, what am I feeling in my body? What's there with that? What am I noticing? Like, what's the quality of my mind right now? I'm kind of getting hooked on the same thought, interesting, you know, so just kind of like a little bit of a zooming out and then noticing what's there. And that really works for me. Um, There are times where it's been a while, but there are times where I do appreciate a guided meditation, just that that feels very grounding. Let's say, you know, my mind is just so busy and even like staying with that question is hard. That's where guided meditation can be really helpful. Um, if I have trouble sleeping, I'll do a guided meditation. So that's kind of a different time of the day, but, um, yeah, but I would say in general, it's unguided. Um, I use the insight timer and so it has a little bell to start and to Mm -hmm. finish. And, um, yeah. And, you know, and, and I think even with that, there's just a lot of acceptance. Like my mind is busy today. Okay. And I just noticed that. And even that is helpful even if I get lost in thought frequently through the meditation, um, just knowing that that's the quality of my mind. So that day is really helpful. Or even, you know, the 10 seconds where I notice I'm holding tightness in my shoulders, that's like really helpful information, even if it stays tight, kind of similar to what you were talking about with yoga classes, you know, that the goal isn't to feel calm or to release necessarily. It's really to just notice like what is the quality of this experience right now? So that's my meditation. I've also like, 
you know, there are times where I notice resistance to sitting on my cushion. And sometimes I'll go with that. Like sometimes there is a need there where I just need to change up the routine. So I'll meditate on the couch downstairs, or if it's nice out, I'll meditate on the porch um, outside or by a window. Um, So, you know, I try to hold some flexibility with how I practice as well. And if there is resistance, not not completely lean in by not meditating, but seeing like, how can I, you know, shift this a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I'm, I know in the bio that I read, you said that you use mindfulness yeah. with clients. I'm curious maybe to shift a little bit to some of the work sure. that you do with clients, because I'm really interested in your um, specialties, which correct me if I'm wrong, but you work with highly sensitive people and people wanting to work on self-esteem. Mm-hmm. Um, are there other areas of specialty that you have as far as your population? Yeah. Um, yeah. I would say um, people who are highly sensitive, people who um, experience anxiety, people who experience kind of difficulty with self-esteem, low self-esteem, um, they often overlap too. So I can talk a little bit more about that. And then another area that I'm really um, interested in and I work with people around is parenting, which actually can really connect with those as well. You know, I work with a lot of parents who, um, you know, have high expectations of themselves and are really critical, self-critical and, um, you know, how can you practice self-acceptance and from that place of self-acceptance, kind of accepting your children and the emotions that are coming up for them. Um, so yeah, so those are my areas of specialty. Um, yeah, I would love to dive into the overlap that you hinted at and to what that looks like, the overlap between those, the highly sensitive, the anxiety, self-esteem. Yeah. So what I've noticed is, so highly sensitive people, um, you know, this is a highly sensitive is a trait or sensitivity is a trait that um, Dr. Elaine Aaron, she's a psychologist, has done a lot of research on and there's been subsequent research on it, but it's a trait that some people have. Um, I think they say like 20% of the population have the trait of sensitivity. And basically what that means, um, there's an acronym, the acronym is DOES. So, um, uh, and these are the qualities of highly sensitive. So depth of processing, overstimulation, um, emotional responsivity and empathy and um, sensitive to subtleties. So kind of aware of subtleties. So those are the qualities. and. Um, when I think of highly sensitive people, I do think of that, you know, it's, it's so this trait is your highly sensitive people are picking up on the subtleties, they're processing it um, at a much deeper level than non highly sensitive people. Um, because of that overstimulation, like if you just think of, you know, you're kind of taking in a lot of information, maybe more than um, your average person. Um processing it really deeply, that's really overstimulating um, because there's just so much going on. And so then if you imagine like a crowd of people, there's so much to be processed, so much happening, and a lot is kind of coming in and that's really overstimulating. Um, And aware of subtlety. So highly sensitive people tend to be aware of other people's moods more than, than others, kind of picking up on these like really subtle shifts that 
not everyone might pick up on processing that really deeply, kind of taking that in. Again, that can feel really overstimulating. Um, talking about the negative, but I hope as I'm talking about this, people can hear like all the incredible um, benefits that that has too. But as that relates to my specialties, um, I just have found that highly sensitive people tend to feel anxious because there's so much going on internally, so much being processed and overstimulation, um, which can feel, you know, if you think of anxiety as like fight or flight, if you're overstimulated, you're going to be in that kind of heightened anxiety state. And then because highly sensitive people are about 20% of the population, they can kind of be looking around at their peers and saying, other people aren't feeling this way. Why am I feeling this way? What's wrong with me? Why can't I, you know, go to a party three days in a row um, like so-and-so? So that's where it kind of overlaps with self-esteem and self-judgment. And um, yeah, and so that's why I find that these specialties really overlap. And so my work with people is first, I've talked a lot about accepting, but really understanding like what does it mean to be highly sensitive and owning that a little bit more. Um you know, that there really is nothing wrong, that there's a trait and there are all these like beautiful benefits if you can kind of work with it as opposed to against it. And so how can you practice acceptance around it? And yes, that does mean, you know, more prone to anxiety, but that's okay. You know, that there are ways to work with it. And then from that place, kind of building self-esteem from that self-esteem, kind of owning your needs, like, oh, okay, I need to stay in tonight. There's nothing wrong with that. Or, you know, the opposite of like, oh, I've really been inside for a while. It could be really helpful for me to challenge myself to like go out in the world. But what are some of the tools that I need um, if I am out in the world, you know, to kind of manage the overstimulation? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's such a thorough explanation. Um, And I'm curious to kind of link back to what we were talking about before. Is there a way that you use meditation and mindfulness um, with your clients who identify as highly sensitive that might be different than what you would do mm-hmm. with maybe a, a less sensitive person? That's a really good question. Um, I don't know if it's too different. But what I am thinking about is that idea of really just listening to what's there and like what the needs are. So using mindfulness to just really um, like, so mindfulness is bringing awareness in a non-judgmental way to what's there. And I think that non-judgmental piece is really important um, for everybody, but especially for highly sensitive people who are in this very busy, loud, chaotic world and might be judging their own kind of needs around some quiet and some space. Um, so I think that that piece and, and kind of leaning into like just really listening non-judgmentally to what's there, you know, if what's there is I feel overstimulated. Okay. Yeah. So what does that need? You know, what does that overstimulation need? Um, so it's not different, but maybe it's really staying especially tuned into what the needs are non-judgmental yeah Yeah, I imagine that it is I mean mindfulness I think is an important skill for everyone but I'm imagining 
um, that it would be a really valuable skill for people who identify in this way because the world can be so much. So the ability to be able to tune in to what is the impact that this is having on me or how do I even feel? I, I think I, I don't know, I haven't explored, but I imagine I fall into this highly sensitive category. So it's yeah. so vital to check in with myself before going out into the world because that's just kind yeah. of like setting myself up to fail. Yeah. Um, that being said, how do you know if you are one of the people who has this highly sensitive trait or if you're just maybe a average sensing person? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I'll answer that in just a sec, but I just want to say, like, I think you're so right around, um, just for highly sensitive people, it's even more important. Like it's important for everybody, but probably even more important to take that time to check in, um, and have some sort of, it doesn't have to necessarily be a meditation practice, but some sort of practice of slowing down and checking in because the world is so busy and overstimulating. And it's the other thing is that um, for people who have this trait, it's really easy to absorb other people's emotions mm-hmm. and sort of really have that time where you tune into what's there for you and kind of some separation between, you know, you and the world before entering back into the world. So kind of having that like, um, kind of like tuning in before you tune back out. Um, experience. So yeah. Um, and, and I'll just say too, like I identify as a highly sensitive person. And I think that the process of kind of finding that morning routine was in part out of necessity, being a highly sensitive person to just have one moment in time during the day where I know it's a little quieter. There's a little bit more spaciousness to tune in. Yes. Yeah. So I'm curious, and maybe this will answer the question about how you know yeah. if you have this trait, yes. maybe what what you would like to share about your own process of realizing, or maybe you always knew. It sounds like you were in a family that was pretty tuned into these like self-discovery things or mm-hmm. self-awareness, but how did, how did you come to discover this about yourself, and how do you maybe recommend other people start to explore for themselves? Yeah, so um, I think there was a way in which I always kind of knew. I definitely did not have words for it, but I always kind of knew um, that I I picked up on a lot. Um, And, you know, some people would say you're sensitive. Some people would say you're shy. Some people would say... um, you're empathetic. So different people had different words to describe it. And, you know, so I took in other people's words too. Um, You're an introvert. I forgot to say that one. Um, So I took in other people's words. And I remember actually there was some meditation retreat I went on when I was a teen, I don't know, maybe like 15 or 16 years old. And um, part of meditation retreats is you do an interview. It's called an interview with a teacher where you basically just kind of share your experience thus far, they offer support guidance. Um, and the teacher said, you strike me as a very sensitive person who takes in a lot around you. Um, not, and, and I think sensitive gets a bad rap, but the way she said it was like a turning point for me where it was like, oh yeah, I just take in a lot. Um, and, and it was nice. It was a little bit validating where it's like, oh, that kind of, um, yeah, sensitivity, I felt that that's that's also like a superpower. 
um, to take in so much. And so I think it was like taking in other people's words was helpful to kind of give words to this feeling I had and the feeling I had, like, I remember also, um, which is probably, you know, why I'm a therapist too, but like being at summer camp and like kids were crying and I gravitated to, you know, wanting to support and feeling that empathy or even in kindergarten, like kids feeling homesick, you know, having trouble saying goodbye. I would always go to those kids who are having trouble saying goodbye. And I think, you know, as I've learned more about um, uh, highly sensitive people, there is this empathy that um, kind of you, you empathize on such a deep level and want to support. And, and so, you know, I definitely had those tendencies. Um, and then maybe a few years ago, someone gave me the words highly sensitive person. And, um, if you go to, so this is how someone can kind of find out. I mean, I would say tune into your own experience first and just kind of notice like, what was your past? Like, you know, were you described as shy, introverted, sensitive, empathetic, um, maybe more quiet and, I'll get back to introversion and shyness and highly sensitive because there's some misconceptions there, but, um, you know, kind of tune into your past. What does it feel like being in groups? What does it feel like, you know, um, what are loud sounds like for you? What are, um, kind of textures because the other piece is kind of being sensitive to like physical sensations. So texture sounds, um, lighting, um, what is it like being around other people when other people are expressing emotions? What happens for you? So kind of asking those questions, just tuning into your own experience. And then um, then there are actual resources, there are self-tests. So if you go to um, highlysensitiveperson.com, I believe, or hsp.com, Dr. Elaine Aaron's website, there's a self-test you can take, and it's just a questionnaire. And based on you know how you answer that, it can say sound like a highly sensitive person or you don't. Um, and so that's helpful. And then I would suggest just reading, um, maybe reading her book, The Highly Sensitive Person. She has a lot of books, but there's, um, I think it's called The Highly Sensitive Person, Dr. Elaine Aaron. And then there's another book that I'm reading right now called Sensitive. Um, I'm going to have to get the author for you maybe after this. Yeah, like the author. That's okay. And I'm sure if I Google it, I will put all of these resources in the show notes too. So I'll, okay. I'll make sure to update that for everyone and for myself. Okay, cool. I know they have a website. I'm just blanking on their name, but their website is sensitiverefuge.com. Um, and they have a self-test as well. Um, so yeah, so those are resources, reading, you know, taking those self-tests, tuning into your own experience. Um, I think self-tests are helpful, but I also think, you know, just tuning into your own experience and what resonates for you. So those are some ways to know. Awesome. Thank you. And I, I know that your area is in supporting highly sensitive people, not necessarily in defining it in an academic sense. So I appreciate you taking the time to like really walk me through this. Um, and well, actually I want to come back to what you had kind of like bookmarked about introversion Mm -hmm. and shyness. I'm curious what you wanted to say about that. Yeah. So the more I'm learning about highly sensitive people, the more, you know, I'm just kind of getting interested in like society's perceptions um, and misperceptions. And so um, 
people often think highly sensitive people are shy or introverted, which isn't necessarily the case. So it's kind of two separate things. Um, highly sensitive people take in a lot, process it deeply. That can lead to overstimulation, which can appear like shyness in a group setting, but that might actually be self-regulation when actually there could be a very um, outgoing person who is highly sensitive. Um, however, they still need to kind of take that time to recharge, settle back in to um, be in the group. And similarly, you know, shyness, introversion, it can look like introversion, um, but a person can still actually recharge, can still be extroverted and be highly sensitive. So their re recharge still could be social. Um, however, because in social settings, they're also taking in so much information. Sorry for that loud noise. Um, they're taking in so much information. Um, you know, the subtle information, the nonverbal cues, other people's emotions, perceptual information, um, they also get overstimulated. So they still need to kind of self-regulate maybe by taking some time away, but that isn't actually introversion. They're still recharging by being social. However, because they have this trait, um, yeah. if that makes sense. It makes so much sense to me, at least. It really resonates. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious, you may or may not be able to answer this, but this is sounding a lot to me like different sort of um, traits that could be like considered neurodiversity. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering if being highly sensitive kind of falls into that neurotype category mm -hmm. or like a neurodivergence in neurodiversity. Yeah. Yeah. So I was recently, I, you know, I don't know enough about this to say like with full confidence, but I was recently reading that there is um, kind of a push for highly sensitive people to fall under the category of neurodivergence um, because, you know, to really um, support people and having this identity be understood, accepted, um, in the ways that other neurodivergence is being, you know, better understood now and accepted as opposed to kind of ostracized and um, othered. And so, yes, short answer is yes, it, it is. I think it does fall under that category. And I think that there's more and more kind of push for that research around that happening right now, too. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for speaking to that. Yeah. And I, I know we don't have a ton more time, but one question I've just been dying to ask is, mm -hmm. I know that you also practice EMDR. Mm -hmm. um, and I think of EMDR as treatment for trauma. Mm -hmm. And I know that you use it in the context of um, self-esteem and anxiety and highly sensitive people. What does EMDR look like? within that population? Are you working with trauma or are you working with something different? Yeah, really great question. So um, might ground my answer back in highly sensitive people for a moment and then like answer that more fully. But one interesting thing about highly sensitive people too is that um, emotional uh, responsivity piece. So studies have shown that highly sensitive people um, respond more to their emotional experiences than non-HSPs, which means they respond more if they have had traumatic experiences, um, 
um, maybe not traumatic, but challenging experiences, there's more of an emotional response to that. However, similarly, if a person, a highly sensitive person has had positive supportive experiences, they respond more positively to that. So it's really interesting. There have been studies that show that highly sensitive people benefit even more than non-highly sensitive people to therapy, to tools, because they take in, again, at a deeper level, um, um, support and tools. Similarly, if they've had negative experiences, they take in and process more. So one thing um, is that because of that, experiences that might, how should I say this? On a, um, a nervous system level, a non-HSP might not register it as trauma. An HSP might register it as trauma because, again, it's taking in on a deeper level. And so um, the nervous system gets overstimulated, dysregulated from these experiences. And again, it gets really regulated by positive experiences. So I think that you know, that kind of grounds my answer in, um, yes, I do work with trauma. Um, I often work with folks who might not be coming to me for trauma. They might be coming to me for anxiety. They might be coming to me, um, you know, with self-esteem challenges. And as we do the work earlier life experiences, like, you know, maybe being bullied in school or comment by a peer or repeated comments, you know, in early life that hit hard kind of there's I guess more acceptance of like oh that did hit me really hard and that did kind of set the stage for the anxiety I'm feeling today or the you know low confidence I'm feeling today Mm. and some of that might have to do with their level of sensitivity and some might have to do with well it also has to do with just being human and I think you know practicing acceptance and understanding that these early life experiences do leave a mark and how to be kind of bring compassion and understanding today. Yeah. Yeah. That makes so much sense. I mean, my, my own, um, definition of trauma that I use with clients, not mine, but that it's not the event that happened to us, but the way that our nervous system and our body responds. So what is trauma for one person is just a stress for another person. It makes so much sense to look at highly sensitive people on that nervous system level. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And just a little aside note, I know a lot of people listening are in the sort of religious trauma community because that's my specialty. Mm -hmm. And I think that this conversation, although we're not even talking about religious trauma, but I imagine it will feel really validating. At least it does Mm -hmm. to me because I think a really common experience for those of us raised in high control religions is why why am I so deeply affected by this when like my family seems fine or my friends mm-hmm. seem fine? And perhaps this lens of sensitivity is maybe a helpful paradigm to understand like, oh, maybe I'm just a little bit more sensitive to what happened to me than other people. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, yeah. In fact, it's actually very freeing. Mm-hmm. It's just... And actually, perhaps this is a good place to talk a little bit about the the gifts of being a highly sensitive person. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I just want to say I got shivers as you were saying that because I do, you know, I think that it's it's really 
it's really true. And I think that is the freedom of maybe, maybe understanding it through this lens that, yeah, like it did affect me and that's perfectly okay that it did affect mm. me. And yeah, yeah um, it maybe hit at a deeper level than other people. And, and that's beautiful because there are so many gifts to it, you know? And so, um, yeah, I mean, there are so many gifts. So I think that like the gift of empathy is huge. I think that, you know, people who process deeply can really understand others at a level that, um, maybe non-HSPs can't. And again, I don't want to other by, you know, saying non-HSPs, it's just a trait and they're, they're, positives and negatives to every trait. Um, but that empathy is really helpful. And, um, and, you know, I think it's kind of an antidote, like we need every type of person, but I think that the sensitive people we really need in our society, um, we really need that um, attuned, connected, um, empathetic kind of personality trait, because that's connecting, that's humanizing, that's, you know, kind of grounding back into values and, um, yeah, unity. So there are those benefits. I mean, I think that um, pretty cool that studies have shown that um, highly sensitive people benefit even more from positive ex- or benefit even more from experiences like therapy or having a mentor growing up or a supportive adult, that, you know, there's higher uh, success rates in those areas because again you're processing more deeply that's really cool um and that um yeah highly sensitive people who get that kind of support can um really excel uh in ways that maybe non-hsps can still do well but not to that extent um you know, just the beauty of like taking in positive experiences. It's really hard to take in negative experiences to a really deep level, but I think that there's beauty in that too. And if you look at the the flip side, taking in positive experiences, taking in a sunset, you know, processing mm-hmm. that on a really deep level, um, that's pretty cool to, yes. to be able to do. Um, what else? <laughs> I think that there is, um, you know, I was reading the other day, just kind of tendencies toward more creativity, more, um, you know, that there are a lot of uh, really creative, like musicians, artists who are highly sensitive people as well. So kind of like expressing that, that depth out to the world. Um, And, you know, I think everybody um, appreciates that. I think most people appreciate music, art in some way, shape or form. So kind of bringing that depth of processing um, out into the world. So those are some of the benefits. There are probably a million more, but those are. (laughs) I'm sure. And and staying with sort of the theme of our conversation, I imagine part of the process is sort of tuning into yourself and noticing for yourself, what are my unique gifts? because of this trait or in addition to this trait. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I do invite, you know, if listeners are resonating with this idea of highly sensitive people to, you know, just like kind of tuning in, what are some of the traits, what are some of the ways that's been challenging? What are some of the ways that's been really amazing to have this mm-hmm. trait? What are, yeah. What are the gifts it's brought you, the benefits? Yeah. 
Awesome. Uh, I could talk about this for so much longer, but I want to respect your time. Um, but if people want to work with you or learn more about you, I will link your website in the show notes. But what what is the best way for people to learn more about you and potentially work with you? Yeah. Um, so I think going to my website is the best way, which is lizadettenberg.com. Um poke around in there. You can reach out. There's a contact form in there. So you can reach out to the contact form. Um, And I checked out your website. And now that we've had this conversation, I'm like, this website was made for a highly sensitive person because it is just so like aesthetically pleasing and it, but it's so simple. It's not overwhelming. So anyway, I just have to throw that out there now that we've talked about this. Thank you. Yeah, that was you know, it, it took time. I had a mm-hmm. first iteration that was a little too bold and, you know, not, not as calming for a highly sensitive person. So thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, I will definitely plug your website and all the resources we've talked about in the show notes. And thank you so much mm-hmm. for being here. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Lovely talking about this. This has been another conversation with your friend, the therapist. To follow the podcast, you can find us on Instagram at your friend, the therapist pod, and you can follow my work as a trauma therapist and yoga teacher on Instagram at Carrie Fillion Psychotherapy or my website, carriefillion.com. Take care and stay well.